We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. It says, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the, was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his people or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah, be famous in Jerusalem. Through the offspring of the, that the Lord gives you by this woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. On this here... Pentecost Sunday, the day that 2,000 years ago you, you gave the church, uh, you birthed the church by giving us your Holy Spirit, we recognize your presence here as we do every Sunday that we gather. And as there was a great harvest that day, we ask even that there would be a, a harvest in our hearts today, a harvest of, of renewed hope and a, a harvest of renewed joy in our salvation and our redemption. We also ask that there would be a harvest of souls today. Pray for the person here today who is still contemplating their allegiance to you, God. Still contemplating their relationship or lack thereof with you. We ask that you would bring them into your family today that you would open our eyes to your great love for us as we look at this story of redemption. And we ask that you would talk to us in our hearts like only you can. I surrender my words to you and my plans to you. I want to be a vessel today, Lord. So use me as you see fit. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most popular museums in Croatia is also one of the most surprising. In fact, it was so popular there that California decided we needed one of our own, which you can now visit on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. 
It's called the Museum of Broken Relationships. And yes, it's a real thing. And yes, people actually love it and flock to it to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people every single year. The Museum of Broken Relationships is full of donated, leftover objects from broken relationships, like breakup letters and anniversary gifts, accompanied by a written explanation of each item. One of the best in the museum is called the Toaster of Vindication, which is literally a toaster that someone donated accompanied by a brokenhearted and bitter explanation that reads, I took the toaster. How are you going to toast anything now? (laughs) But why is the Museum of Broken Relationships so popular? Because we all know what it's like to experience a relationship coming to an end whether it's our own or that of someone that we know or love. And there is a camaraderie in knowing that others have experienced this as well. But in the same way that we all know what it's like to experience the brokenness of a relationship, we also know what it's like to hold out hope for a broken relationship to be restored, even one that seems way too far gone. We all know what it's like to hope for redemption, Because the truth is, we all want to believe that redemption is possible, even in the most far-gone situations. And with God, it actually is possible. And this is where we find ourselves in Ruth chapter 4. Redemption is finally going to come to the household of Naomi through her daughter-in-law Ruth and a man named Boaz. And in the coming weeks, we will look at what this redemption means for the redeemed, for the family of Naomi, and ultimately for the entire world. But today we are focusing not on the effects of the redemption, but on the Redeemer himself and on the process of redemption. And we're going to dig into that story today. But listen, in a few moments, I'm also going to tell you how the truth of this story actually changes everything about your life and how the truth of redemption actually changes everything about your life. If you remember, Naomi had pretty much lost all hope that the situation, that her life, that her family could be redeemed. If you remember her and her husband, Elimelech, had lived in Israel, and then uh, they had a couple of sons, and then this, this, this great famine hit the country. And it got so bad, and their poverty got so bad, that they were forced to leave their homeland and move to a place called Moab, which was the land of their ancient enemies. But while they were there, things started to Look up a little bit. Their sons met and married some Moabite women. Seemed like everything was good until Elimelech, the father of this family, died. And then a few few years later, both of the sons died, leaving three widows, Ruth, the, the mother, I'm sorry, Naomi, the mother, and then Ruth, whom this book is named after, one of the son's widows, widows, and then another wife named Orpah, also a widow. So seeing no future for herself in Moab, Naomi decides, I'm going back home to Bethlehem. Ruth demands that she's allowed to come along. She returns with Naomi. And now Naomi, who left full and happy, returns to Bethlehem empty and bitter. And honestly, it's kind of understandable. This was the kind of situation that appeared to have no hope of redemption. 
But little did Naomi know God was writing a beautiful redemption story for her and her family. We saw last week this man, Boaz, that he was in fact what they called one of the family's guardian redeemers. And for a guardian redeemer to bring redemption, it was going to be a beautiful thing, but it was a process. There was some work that needed to be done. It was going to involve a cost. In fact, redemption always involves a cost. So there are five markers about redemption that I want to bring our attention to today that we find in the book of Ruth, the passage that we just read, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Number one, the Redeemer paid for the redemption personally. The Redeemer paid for the redemption personally. Listen, if this whole thing that we just read sounds a little bit strange to you, you're like, wait, what? There's like land and then somebody's got to buy it and give it back to the family. And then the widow needs to be married by someone else who's in the family so that the family line can continue. If this all sounds a little bit weird to you, you have to remember, we live in a world where there are government programs for people who fall on hard times. There's things like Medi-Cal. There's things like welfare. There's things like social security even. But in the year 1100 BC, there were no government assistance programs For the poor, nothing that would provide for a widow who had lost her husband and sons and now was impoverished like Naomi. God's people were the system. In his kindness, God put commands in his law for his people to provide for those in need. And this is where the idea of the guardian redeemer comes into play. And there were two Old Testament commands in the law having to do with this exact thing. The first one had to do with the land. Leviticus 25, it says, If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. Redeem. It means to set free by paying a price. If you fell on hard times, your options would have been very limited back then. Someone's land was their inheritance, right? It was like their security that that secured their family's dwelling in that land. And so you wanted to keep your land if you could. But Naomi's husband had lost or sold his land. Why? Well, most commentators believe that he actually had to probably during the famine. He was desperate. He was like, I don't know what else to do. We're not going to move somewhere else. We're not going to do that first. I got to sell the land. And then once all that money was gone, they believed that he was forced then to finally leave his country. And so then when Naomi returns to Moab, after her husband has died, she returns with nothing and to nothing. It was a hopeless situation, which is why God put this command about the land in his law. Hopefully, a guardian redeemer would be willing to come along and set the land free, if you will, by paying a price for it. The second command that God put into his law had to do with their wives. It says in Deuteronomy 25, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Because the family name was carried on through the men in a family, 
If you died without having a son, then your family name would have been erased from the history of your people forever. Some of us might not care about that because we don't have the same kind of like connection to our people where a lot of us are maybe a mismatch of a lot of things. This was utterly important back then. And because God regarded every family and clan as having equal value, he made a provision for the blotting out of a family to never have to happen to anyone, no matter what got them into that situation in the first place. So then in every family, there would have been what was called guardian redeemers in case something like this happened. As we saw last week in chapter three, if the husband didn't have a brother that was a guardian redeemer, then it would be the next closest man. It would be an uncle or then a cousin or a second cousin. And as these guardian redeemers Uh, they would have had a moral responsibility to purchase back the land that had been sold and to marry the widow who had lost her husband, hence making a way not only for the dead husband's lineage to continue, but also a way for his widowed wife to be taken care of because there would have been no easy way for a woman to provide for herself in the year 1100 BC. This was the merciful love of God. As we saw last week, Boaz was one of Naomi's family's guardian redeemers. The redeemer had to be someone in Naomi's family. The redeemer had to be someone related to the family, which means that he couldn't have pawned it off on someone else. He had to redeem personally. He couldn't outsource the cost of redemption, and he didn't. And he didn't ask someone else to pay for it. And he didn't require Naomi and Ruth to cover some of the cost. Even as he said to this other man in verse five, if you are not going to redeem the land, tell me, I will redeem it. As was defined in the commands of the law, Boaz paid for it personally. Number two, he paid for the redemption willingly. As we just read, God did have a plan to help people like Naomi. So when Naomi's husband Elimelech died and then both of her sons died, there was a provision for how to make sure that her and her family could still continue and be taken care of. There was a command for the guardian redeemers to do the right thing. And in this case, there were actually guardian redeemers who could redeem. The question was, were they going to be willing to redeem? Because although it was a command in God's law to do this, God's people didn't always obey his command, if you've ever read the Old Testament. And so often, or now, and so often the guardian redeemer would say no. Maybe they counted the cost as too much. It was too much of an inconvenience. They didn't want to pay the amount. It wasn't going to benefit them. Even as we see in this story, this man at first is willing, and then he's like, you know what? If this isn't going to benefit me, I'm out. I am unwilling to do this. But in the same way that no one forced him to do it, so Boaz was not forced to do this. He didn't have to. And he didn't need to. The Redeemer chose to. Why? Well, it wasn't out of obligation. It was out of love. Thirdly, he paid for the redemption sacrificially. He paid for the redemption sacrificially. The purpose of these laws was to preserve the name and to protect the property of the families in Israel. God didn't 
want the land exploited by rich people who could take advantage of the poor people, people like widows and people like Elimelech's family who were forced to sell their property just because they could afford it. God didn't be like, well, they had the money, so now they own all the land. God was trying to preserve what each family had, viewing each one as equally value, valuable in his land. And so God set up this law for the benefit of people like Naomi and like Naomi's family. When Elimelech died, his, son should have pa- uh, the, his land should have been passed on to his son, Ruth's husband so that it could stay in his family and he could benefit. And if the land had been sold previously like like it was, then the son, Malon, Ruth's husband, should have had the opportunity to buy it back, to redeem it, so that it could stay in the family. And then when, when he died and then his brother died, Naomi, their mom, should have had the opportunity to purchase it so that it could continue to stay in the family. This is what God cared about, that it could stay in the family. But that wasn't possible because Naomi had no money to do so, which is precisely why God wrote these guardian redeemer commands so that the family could still somehow be taken care of. It was never, listen, it was never about benefiting the redeemer, but the redeemed. Which is why it was going to require a sacrifice because it wasn't about the one who was going to pay. It was all about the one on the receiving end, the redeemed. At first, this first redeemer was actually open to paying, but like I said, he was only open to paying if it gave him, the transaction gave him more than it cost him. We see it in verse five. He was motivated by his own self-interest. If this transaction will benefit me, then I am willing. If this transaction is not going to benefit me or if it's going to put my estate at risk, as he said, I don't want it. And to be fair, it would have required a sacrifice on his part, maybe a big one. But while he was only interested in what he would have to pay and what he would gain, Boaz was willing to pay any cost so that another could gain. And so he paid for the redemption sacrificially. Fourthly, he also paid for the redemption publicly. In order to redeem officially and legally, Boaz had to do so publicly in the presence of witnesses. And so he did. In chapter 3, we saw it last week, he tells Ruth that as long as the other redeemer is unwilling, I will redeem and I will marry you and continue on this family line. So in the morning, he goes out to the city gate, which is where legal matters would have taken place. And I love that it says that this other dude just so happens to show up. Like you can read past it, but when I read that, I'm like, wow, that is the divine orchestration, the divine providence of God. Like this, this guy just so happens to show up right as Boaz is sitting down. He didn't have his phone number. He couldn't text him, hey, meet me at the city gate. This guy came by and he said, come on over. He brings them on over. And then he goes and he gathers some of the elders from the city. He's doing all of this publicly. And then soon some of the public people gather around as well. And what we need to see here is that this was not something that was to be done in secret, behind closed doors. This was something that was to be done for everyone to see. And there's two things I want us to note about the public nature of the redemption. The public nature of the redemption had legal implications because it was in public and it had personal implications because it was in public. 
doing this publicly had legal implications and that it legitimized what was happening and it memorialized what was happening. It was like, that's, that's legit. And it memorialized it, like time stamped it, right? This is what the sandal exchange was all about in verse seven, right? Did you see that? It says in times in Israel, the way that they would solidify a deal was one person would take off one of their sandals and give it to the other one, right? And so the removal of the sandal was to be a visual reminder to the witnesses who were sitting around that yes, indeed, this dude agreed to give up his rights to this land and Boaz agreed to redeem the land and to marry the widow Ruth. And then these witnesses later could look back and be like, it was time stamped, man. I was, I was there. I was about this old. I saw that dude give his, his, his sandal to him. Look, he still only got one sandal. You know where his other sandal is? Is that Boaz's house. Go to Boaz's house. I bet you'll find that sandal hanging on his wall. Right? It memorialized it and it legitimized it. It time stamped it in history and it legalized it. And so it had legal implications. But doing this in public also had personal implications. Because not only did Boaz need for this to be done in public. But I believe that he wanted for this to be done in public for personal reasons. Doing this in public ensured that everyone knew that he wanted to do this and that he wanted Ruth to be his wife. He was choosing. Remember, he didn't have to. He was choosing to be the Redeemer. And there is zero implication in this entire story that this man ever second-guessed his commitment to this family, specifically his commitment to Ruth. And in a culture where people were so often ashamed to be found with an outsider like Ruth, Boaz went out of his way to care for her and to do it publicly in plain sight for all to see, essentially saying, from day one, I want you all to know, and Ruth, I want you to know, that I will never be ashamed of being seen with you, of being with you, or of being associated with you. And so he did it publicly. And number five, he paid for the redemption completely. Jewish law had specific instructions for how a family's land ought to be redeemed and how a family member ought to marry and care for a widow. And so Boaz spared no expense to make sure that it was done right and complete. He left no stone unturned. He went to the public square as he ought to the city gate. He went and found witnesses and elders as he ought. He went and found this man. How much integrity does this guy have? He went and found this man who was first in line and brought him as he ought. He presented the case clearly and honestly. He didn't try to manipulate anything as he ought. And then when it fell to him to redeem the family land in Mary Ruth, he didn't hesitate at all. Boaz took no shortcuts and he didn't take the easy route. He didn't redeem partially and he didn't redeem with condition. He did everything that needed to be done for the redemption to be legally binding and fully complete. And he did it all, which meant that there was nothing left for anyone else to have to do. Listen, friends, there was nothing left to be done. Nothing for Ruth or Naomi, the redeemed, to have to do except receive the gift of redemption. 
And friends, this is what Christ, our Redeemer, has done for us. When Jesus died on the cross, the last thing that he said, all the Gospels say that he shouted out with a loud voice, this Greek word, tetelestai. In our English translations, it's most often translated, it is finished. But there's actually a deeper meaning to that word tetelestai. It was actually a legal word that also means paid in full. See, when a a criminal would commit a crime or someone would commit a crime, they would have a, a verdict that was stamped with their crime and the sentence that they had to pay. And then once their sentence had been served, the judge would take that verdict and he would stamp on it to telestai, paid in full. The penalty has been paid for. Now this person is free. Listen, Jesus didn't come to die on a cross because he had committed any crime, but because we had committed a crime. We were guilty, not in an earthly court, but in the court of God. The Bible says that every single person has sinned and fallen short of God's perfectly righteous, glorious standard. And the sentence for this sin that all of us are born with, the sentence for it is stamped death. And so Jesus died to pay our death sentence. This is why he cried out to Talestai. Paid in full. It's done. The sacrifice has been made. And when we put our trust in Jesus, it is stamped across our verdict, paid in full. Jesus paid it all. Remember, redemption, it means to set something or someone free, to set free by paying a price. This is what Jesus came to do, to set us free from our guilty verdict by paying a price with the price of his life. And just like the Redeemer in Ruth paid for the redemption personally, so Jesus paid for our redemption personally. Friends, he didn't outsource redemption. He paid for it himself. And you need to hear today that he also didn't ask you to pay for part of it. He isn't like, hey, I'm going to do the cross thing. And now now you're going to need to make this sacrifice and do this and do this and do this. You're going to earn the redemption for me, okay? You're going to have to pay me back somehow. No, 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 no. The only thing he requires from us is to receive the gift of the redemption. That is our action, is our response to the work that he has already done. Because only a perfect sacrifice could have paid that penalty for us. That's why Jesus, the perfect one, had to die in our place. And what we get to do is exactly what Ruth and Naomi got to do, just receive the gift of redemption. And just like the Redeemer and Ruth had to be closely related to this family in order to be the Redeemer, so our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, became like one of us. The Son of God became a Son of Man to live and to die for us. And just like the Redeemer in Ruth had to sacrifice in order to redeem, so our Redeemer made the greatest sacrifice of all as the Father gave his Son and as the Son gave his life. And just like the Redeemer in Ruth didn't do it for his own gain, but for the gain of another, so Christ gave his life so that we might live. He died for us so that we might live. He died for you 
so that you might live. The Bible says that Jesus didn't look out for his own good. He didn't look out for his own gain. In fact, he accounted, uh, he didn't count his equality with God even as something that he had to hold on to. But he humbled himself and became a man. And he came to serve us, ultimately serving us in his death so that we might live. It was in his giving that we have received everything. And just like the Redeemer in Ruth did it willingly, so our Redeemer did it willingly. He was not obligated to set us free with the price of his life. Nobody coerced him into doing it. Nobody forced his hand, but he did it. He didn't need to, but he wanted to because of his great love with which he loved us. You don't have to make God love you. You don't have to try to get him to want you or get him to want to save you. Just like the Redeemer in Ruth wasn't ashamed. Our Redeemer is not ashamed to be with us and to be associated with us. As the scriptures say, both the one who makes people holy, God, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Friends, you need to know today that he already loves you. He already loves you. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets and he already loves you. Not because you did something or didn't do something or because of how good you are, but because of how good he is and because you were already his to begin with. He loves you because you were already his to begin with, which means that there's no amount of good that you can do to earn more love from God or to earn you a place in the family of God. He already loves you like one of his children because he made you. And he made you for a relationship with him. He made you for a relationship with him. But your sin has separated you from him. Your sin has broken your relationship with God. When God looks across the world, it is like an, a gigantic museum of broken relationships, but not with one another, with him. Humanity's relationship with God was broken when sin entered the world. And so we were all born with a broken relationship with God. And yet this is what we were created for, was relationship with God. I said it at the beginning that we all know what it's like to experience a broken relationship. Well, listen, God knows what it's like to experience the heartbreak of a broken relationship too. This is why he sent his son, to do something about it. To bridge the chasm of brokenness between us and him. This is why he sent Jesus to die so that our sin that separated us from God could be removed so that we could come back into relationship with him. This is how much the Redeemer has loved you. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask Cece and Katie to come up as I say one last thing. Like the Redeemer in Ruth, our Redeemer died publicly for all the world to see. He died publicly for all the world to see. But friends, he didn't just die publicly. 
Jesus Christ rose publicly. And as we get ready to do this baptism and baptize a few people, we're going to do it publicly. And we need to hear this. If Jesus just died and didn't rise from the dead, then he's nothing more than a good teacher who did some cool miracles and then suffered a wrongful death. But if Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, just like he said he would, then he is not just a good teacher. He is the savior of the world. He is your savior. If Jesus rose from the dead and he did rise from the dead, then that means that everything that he said and did is true. And what Jesus said was that he was the way, he was the truth, he was the life, and that nobody could get back to God except through him. That only through his death and resurrection, only through us putting our trust in him could we come back in a relationship with God. Only through our, us putting our trust in him could our sins be forgiven and that chasm between us and God be bridged. That's what Jesus said. And then he proved it was true by rising from the dead after he died. Friends, Jesus is alive. And so we celebrate that in the baptisms today as people are buried in an identification with Jesus that their sin has been buried with Jesus. And then just as they are raised up, it is identifying with Jesus. I don't stay down there. My sin stays down there, but I rise up to newness of life, just like Jesus rose up. And today, man, we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate with these few people who are going to be baptized. The Bible says that when one person comes to faith in Jesus, all the heaven is like, hey, they like, God stops and is like, hey, look at what's happening. They all look and they're like, Whoo! and they all start rejoicing in heaven when one. So is there's a few that are being baptized today and publicly confessing their commitment to Jesus, publicly confessing their identification with him, publicly confessing their allegiance to him and him alone. Y'all, we better celebrate today. We better celebrate today because Jesus dying on the cross was like his public wedding vows where he was like, this is my commitment. This is my part. This, this is my part. This is what I'm bringing to the table. Baptism is the beginning of us saying, Jesus, my life, this is what I'm bringing to the table. Here I am. This is my public commitment to you. This is my public response to what you have done publicly. That's why we do it publicly. That's why we do it with other people, just like Jesus died in front of many witnesses. So these few are going to be baptized today in front of many witnesses. Amen? We're going to invite the rest of the band up now. If you are being baptized today, then you can go ahead and get your, uh, chart to make your way over there. You can line up along the sidewalk right now. Billy and Chad, you guys can go ahead and get in the water. Guys, this is such a beautiful picture today of our new life in Jesus. And so, listen, I know Tim already said it, but I just want to encourage you. If you have not yet gone public with your faith through baptism, you need to do that today. You don't, the, the groom doesn't say his vows publicly and then the wife's like, hey, I'm gonna write a letter and put it in my drawer in case anybody needs to identify it. She responds by saying her vows publicly, right? So Jesus 
pledged his vows to us publicly, we respond to him publicly. If you have not yet publicly declared your allegiance to Jesus, your commitment to him, your identifying with your sins being washed away and you being raised up to newness of life, today is the day to do it. But Dom, I don't have any clothes and I really like this outfit. So what? Put on a black shirt, get in the water. It's warm, it's sanitized. Today is the day to do that. Today is the day to do that. Hey, just wait a second, Billy. And listen, I want to say one more thing. Some of you planned on being baptized today. Some of you didn't plan on it, but previous to now, you, you've made a decision to follow Jesus. Today's the day that you're going to come up and you're going you're to get baptized, okay? No matter what you're wearing, you're going to come up and get baptized. But listen, there's some who have not yet made a decision to follow Jesus. Being baptized today is the way that you can publicly say, all right, and I'm choosing today. I'm choosing today to give my allegiance to Jesus Christ. I'm choosing today to identify with him and to have my sins washed away, buried, and to be raised up in newness of life, to become a new creation in Jesus Christ. Today, I am responding to Jesus' love for me by being baptized. You can do that today. We're gonna enter into what we call our second set of worship now. It's a time for us to respond, right? We respond through song. You can respond by grabbing communion elements and remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. You can respond by confessing your need, by getting prayer from our prayer team. But you can also respond by being baptized right now. So I wanna encourage us to observe what's happening, to sing the songs that we're singing that, that kind of coincide with what's happening, and then to rejoice with those who are being baptized today. And if you want to put your trust in Jesus for the first time, or maybe you want to come out back to him, or maybe you got baptized before, but it meant nothing to you. Who cares if you say some vows to a seven-year-old girlfriend or boyfriend when you're in second grade and you're like, I love you. I'm committing my life to you. You don't know what that means. If that, that's like you getting baptized when you're a kid, you don't know what it means. Man, now you're an adult and you're like, I know what it means to be married. I know what it means to be married. And so I'm making the commitment to Jesus. Today is the day. If you got baptized a long time ago, you didn't know what it means. Today's the day for you to say, I know what this means now. I'm making it public. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to shut up now. If you want to get baptized, go line up on the sidewalk. The team's going to lead us in these songs. Let's rejoice together.